welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. But it is a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, thank you for that song in Afrikaans. I don't know a single Afrikaans word. Other, actually, I know one. Mora. That's the only thing I know. <laughs> so I don't know most of those words in that song, but I know that song in English. So it was a blessing to my heart to hear it sung in a different language. And just a reminder of that day in heaven where we're going to stand before the throne of God. And all the languages, all the tribes, all the tongues will be singing, Worthy is the Lamb. So it was a great moment this morning for me to hear that. Um, and just because on top of my mind, as a prayer request slash thing that you could help me with, we do want to learn Afrikaans. I have no idea how I'm going to make some of those sounds. Because <laughs> I've been trying to say... <laughs> fruit brock now for a month and a half because I'm also helping out up there and I still can't get it right so if you would like to teach Afrikaans to my family and I or you know somebody who can teach Afrikaans to my family and I that would be a great blessing um, my daughters have approached me saying dad I have to learn Afrikaans because no one around here speaks English <laughs> none of the kids their age speak English so have, they, they need those friendships. So we need an Afrikaans tutor. So if you know somebody, please let me know. We would love to get that done. So before we uh, dive into the Lord, into the ward this morning, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. Lord, I thank you that we will all stand before you and declare your worthiness in whatever language we know. Lord, what a moment that'll be. Lord, I thank you for that moment. I thank you for the hope of that moment. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today looking at your word. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the leaders that you have called for, to this church. And Lord, as it was already mentioned this morning, may this be a beacon of hope in our community. Lord, I thank you for all that you have done and all that you will do. And may this time be a blessing to your name and to those who hear in your precious name. Amen. You know, I, I find myself repeating phrases. I have certain phrases that I just love to use. I don't know why, but these ones stick with me and I keep using them over and over and over and over. Almost to the point that after a while, it starts to, that phrase starts to lose its meaning. One of my favorite phrases is, not my circus, not my monkeys. In other words, I would look at a situation, I see this mess going on around me, and I'd just look at my wife and say, not my circus, not my monkeys. And she said, yes, those are your children, so yes, that is your mess, and yes, that is your circus, and yes, those are your monkeys. But there are times in our life that it is a very helpful thing to look at a problem, and say, you know what? That's not my problem. This isn't the problem that God's called me to. And realize this problem over here that I'm avoiding, that circus over here, that is my circus. And those are my monkeys. 
And I have a responsibility to that circus. So what I want, to, want us to think about today is, as a church, the church is your circus. And you are each other's monkeys. In other words, you have a responsibility as a church to each other in the body of the church, in the body of Christ. This is your circus. You shouldn't look at what's going around, uh, on around you in the church and say, that's Dan's problem. It might be Dan's problem. He might have caused it. But it's all. It is the body's problem. This is our responsibility. And that's where we find ourselves here in Galatians 6. If you want to turn to Galatians 6, Paul is writing this impassioned letter to, to the churches of the region of Galatia that he started these churches in his first missionary journey. And he's writing this impassioned letter to them saying, what happened to you? You were started well. The gospel was growing. You were doing well. What, and he uses the word, what bewitched you? What spell cast, was cast upon you? What happened to you? You were doing so well, and now you're an absolute mess. Paul says they're foolish. At one point, he calls them stupid. He says they've been bewitched. They've fallen away from the true gospel. Now, it would be easy for a guy like Paul to say, not my circus, not my monkeys, and walk away from this church in, in the complete mess that it is. But he doesn't. He writes a book to them, which, in my opinion, is his most passionate book. I love reading Galatians because Paul gets so angry. <laughs> it's actually kind of fun. Um, I picture him with a red face as he's writing this. But he's passionate because the church has a problem. And he's going to get involved. So as we read this, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Galatians 6. I want you to think of that background. Think of Paul and how, <laughs> what he would address to this church where things are going wrong. So here he is in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not get up, give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So what we want to look at today is we are responsible to each other in the body of Christ. And Paul's going to lay out here well, six different responsibilities that you have. So let's jump right in. First one comes in verse one. 
We've called, we're calling it the dangerous act of restoration. Restoration is when a sinner is caught in a sin, is the way that the passage reads. One who is caught in a sin. That word caught in the Greek is actually the word for surprised. When we are surprised in our sin. That does not mean the person who is sinning is surprised that he is sinning because he knows what his sin is. He is surprised that we, as the body, know that he is caught in that sin. Does that make sense? His surprise is not that his sin. His surprise is that our knowledge of his sin. And our job as fellow believers of this person in our body is to restore him. That word for restore means to mend a broken bone. We are to literally put him back together again. Now, a word of caution. This is not saying, I've heard this person has this sin problem, and I'm going to go fix him. This is, this person, I have seen this person's sin. This person has sinned against me. This person doesn't realize the gravity of the sin that we have observed in him. Then you are to restore. It doesn't say run to your pastor and have him do it. You are to restore that brother. We're not going off a of hearsay. We're not going off of gossip. We're not going off of rumor. We're not spreading any of those things. We're saying this person is sinning against me or I have seen this person sin and I as what the text calls one who is spiritual I don't get a big head about being the spiritual spiritual as Paul defines it in Galatians 5 24 and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires anyone who is a believer in Christ Jesus is a spiritual one because you have the spirit in you. The spirit abides in you. That's what makes you spiritual. We're not talking different classes inside the church. There's not the really good people and the really bad people. Those who are followers of Christ are the spiritual. And it is our job to restore each other. So why do we call this the dangerous act? What does te the text say? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restoration comes with temptation. You could be tempted to fall into the same sin as the person you're restoring. You can fall into the sin of pride, as in, look at that dirty, rotten person that I fixed. Right? That, that can come with restoration. Is that fear of that that potential for you to fall into that same sin pattern. And that's what Paul is saying here. It is a dangerous act, absolutely. But it is a necessary act. If we just turn our back and say, not my circus, not my monkeys, that person's sin problem, I'm pointing at Dan a lot because he's over here. If that person's sin problem, that's not my concern. You're wrong. Scripture tells you it is your, it is your problem. We have a responsibility to restore each other. I love how 
Martin Luther describes his approach to this passage and his approach to the person in need of restoration. He says, run to him and reach out with your hands, raise him up again, comfort him and embrace him with motherly arms. Too often when we see a sinner in the church, we say over there, not my problem. And it would be better if he leaves. Scripture says, run to him, embrace him, hug him, hold him, lift him up, restore him gently as you would a broken bone. That's our responsibility to the, to the person in our, in our church who is sinning, who is falling away. It's not hoping they disappear. It's restoring. Imagine what, your, what the community would think of a church who embraces sinners and restores them to godliness. What would the, what would the idea of that church be? What would it look like? That's what Paul's calling us to. And he's saying, this is your job. Okay, number two. The humbling act of assisting one another, verses two and three. Here we're talking about bearing each other's burdens. Bearing each other's burdens. Um, one of the, the key things to recognize in this text is the word burden. The word burden means something that is too big for one person to bear. Um, back in the States, I used to work in a warehouse with lots of heavy stuff, lots of picking up things. It was a meat packing plant and it wasn't my favorite job, but I had to pay the school bills, so I had to work. And in this warehouse, we would have these boxes that were 100 pounds, so we were thinking 60 kilograms, something like that. And they would have a label smacked onto the side of these heavy boxes that said, team lift only. In other words, no matter how strong I thought I was, I was not allowed to carry that box by myself. I had to find another guy to carry the other end of the box. That is the picture of a burden. A burden is something that you're carrying that's too heavy for you to carry alone. And it is the job of the church the job of the body to carry that with you. Which begs a very important question. How are you going to know that you need to help somebody carry a burden that's too heavy for themselves? You have to tell each other. You have to be close enough to trust each other with that information. You have to say, hey, this, this prolonged illness this, um, this family member who's living in our house with us, this financial burden, whatever it may be, this is just too much for me to carry alone. This anxiety that I feel is too much. This depression that I feel, this financial issues, whatever it may be, if it's too much for you, you need to tell somebody. Because that's part of bearing each other's burdens is there's a responsibility on the person and there's responsibility on the helper. 
responsibility on the person is to tell each other so that someone can help you. And for the person coming alongside, you do have a responsibility to help. And we'll get to what that looks like in a moment. But this, when we do this, Scripture says we fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? John 15, 12 puts it well. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. What is the, new, what is the law of Christ? What is this new commandment? It is we love each other. We show our love for each other. How do we show our love for each other? This text is telling us by bearing each other's burdens. There should not be anyone among us who is crushed under the weight of his own problems. There should be two of us crushed under the weight of that person's problems, at least. No one should be crushed alone. That's what this text is telling us. On to our third responsibility. The lonely act of self-examination. Verse 4 and 5. I'm going to read these together because this can sound like Paul's contradicting himself. But he's not. Let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will, not be, will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. We're just told, bear each other's burdens. Now we're told, everybody has to carry his own weight. There are, it's an important difference between burden and load. One of, the reasons, one of the great things about this translation is it does a good job differentiating these two terms. Load is the Greek idea, or the Greek word, for a backpack. Something that is designed to be a single carry. We each have our own load that we are responsible for. That no one else can carry for us. So when we moved here four months ago, we went through the airport with 22 bags, it felt like. 14 bags, it felt like 25. Um, not counting all the carry-ons. But at one point... I remember carrying multiple backpacks because all my kids had a backpack. It didn't really work well because I'm carrying four backpacks. I couldn't carry all of their load by, I'm sorry, I couldn't take on all of their loads. I needed them to carry some. That's the picture. The picture of the church is, yes, there are some things that we are all carrying our own load of responsibility. And there are some things that we're team lifting together. You cannot force someone else to carry your load. There are certain responsibilities that are yours and yours alone. And there are certain responsibilities that you need help. So, how do we know? How do you know when it's a burden that you should be team carrying? How do you know when it's a load that the person needs to carry on their own. There's no one text, there's no one magical text that can list all the different loads and burdens. But what I want to do is just kind of go through some wisdom principles 
and questions for you to ask yourself when you're in these situations. When somebody comes to you or when you feel that burden, when, how do you differentiate between the two? First, pray for wisdom. James 1.5 let, let any man ask the Lord of... Ugh, I forgot the verse already. My mind just went completely blank. <laughs> if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men. See, so these, this is why I put notes down, but I can't think at the moment. Let any man who lacks wisdom ask of the Lord. He gives it to all men. And he promises that he will not mock us, but wants to give it to us liberally. So, when we're in these things, sometimes the very last thing we think of is praying. It should be the very first thing you think of. Let any man who lacks wisdom ask of God. Secondly, listen to the person speaking. Listen to him. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame. That's Proverbs 18, 13. Wisest man I know, and I quote him every time I do this. Once my, my wife's father said to me, it was one of the, as we were getting married, he said to me, you have two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Best marriage advice I've ever received. Listen more than you speak. So when somebody comes to you and says, I I'm struggling under this, listen. Hold back that desire to fix all their problems all at once. Listen. The problem is always more complicated than you think. Listen. Listen. Hear them out. Ask yourself, is this too big for him? Galatians 6 verse 1. Is he asking for help? Or is he asking for you to take over? There's a key difference between that. Asking for help and asking someone else to carry. Has he been trying to bear the load or the burden, or is he just giving up on his responsibility? Important questions to ask. Can I help without neglecting the responsibilities to my family? 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you cannot help without hurting your family, then you cannot help. Bottom line. Scripture is very harsh on this. That you are worse than an unbeliever if you neglect <coughs> the care of your family. Lastly, can I involve others to help? so that no one person is overburdened. One of the big difficulties in, a, in having a church family who does bear each other's burdens is you have one person trying to bear everybody's burdens. And you can't. That person will burn out. That person will flame out. That person will be destroyed. But as a body, a body is a unit of multiple parts. We can all bear each other's burdens. No one person can. No leadership team can. But as a body, we can together bear those burdens. So it takes everybody. 
Um, one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. In other words, if you want things to stay clean, don't have, any, don't have an ox to help you out. But if you want a great harvest, you need more people involved. You need more help. And we want to see a great harvest. We need more people. And yes, more people that are involved, the more messy it gets. But great things happen when the body works together. Okay, number four. The lonely act of self-examination. We already did. Number four, the joyous act of sharing. Let's read this verse together, verse six. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This verse does not just talk about money. Often, when you read or you teach this verse, you hear it being said that if you're being taught the word of God, you need to give money to the person who is teaching. That is not what the text says. That is an application of it, and it is valid sometimes. But what it's saying is you should be sharing all good things with the person who is teaching you. So what are some of the all good things? All good things include what God is doing in your life. I want to ask, I want to ask you a question. I don't want to see any hands, but I want to ask a question. When was the last time you thanked your pastor? When was the last time that you told your pastor what God's been doing in your life? The good things, not just the bad things. Yes, he should hear about your burdens, but he should also hear about what the great things that God is doing. Nothing thrills a pastor's heart more than hearing the good things that God is doing in your life. When's the last time you shared the good things with the person who has taught, who's been teaching you? <clears throat> so I'm going to give you a challenge. And I know Dan is here, so it's a little awkward. But don't do it to Dick. Do it for Brian. Don't do it for Dan. While Brian's away. Because <laughs> Dan's just, yeah. But for Brian, while Brian's away, send him a message this week. Thank him for his many, many years of service here to the church and what he's meant in your life and how the Lord has used him to grow you. That's exactly what this text is talking about. Sharing the good things that God has taught you with the teacher who God has used to teach you. Share those things. It will mean the world to him being on the other side of the world and knowing how much you appreciate his work in your life that the Holy Spirit led you to. And you don't tell him that I told you how to do this. Okay? Don't, he doesn't need to know that. Dan will laugh when Brian's like, why did I get all these texts this week? But that's what we want. If you all send him a text this week and he's overburdened with it, that would be a lovely thing. And he'll be thrilled by it. But that's exactly what this text is talking about. The joyous act of sharing. That's your responsibility. That's your responsibility to your teachers. Number five, 
the patient act of an expectant harvest. This verse used to scare me as a kid. It was used to scare me as a kid. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will be caught in your sin and destroyed for it. Was I, the way I remembered it as a kid. But this verse is actually said in a very encouraging manner. God is not mocked. The good things that you've been planting, you're going to harvest. That changes the whole idea, right? The good seeds of the gospel that you've been planting through your community, you're going to see a harvest. The good seeds of the gospel you've been planting in your family, the patience you've been showing your children, the love you've been showing your friends, those will bring a harvest. Because God is not mocked. No one can make fun of God. Or look, the, the word for mocked is to actually look down their nose upon. He is not going to be made a mockery because he does not, let the, he does not bring the harvest from those seeds. He will harvest. He will lead that harvest. There are good things that you are doing, hopefully, that God is going to bring about a good harvest from. That should encourage you. This is not meant to scare you. Now, it is also true. The bad seeds that you're planting, you're going to harvest those too. But in the text, the encouragement is, don't get weary in doing the good. Because the good seed will bring a good harvest. So the question of the text has to be, are you tired of planting good seeds? Because if, if you are, then realize the harvest is coming and be excited for the harvest. The other application from the text has to be, if you're not, can you think of a more sad picture than the farmer going out to his field on the day of harvest and knowing that his harvest is going to be terrible. Knowing that his harvest is not going to be enough to feed his family. Knowing that he's going to work for the next week and it's going to be completely futile to bring in this harvest. That's the picture. It's the picture of the text. So what seeds are you planting and are you expecting a great harvest? Or are you that farmer looking at the side of his field saying, I don't even want to see this harvest because I know it's not going to be good. What harvest are you looking forward to? Our responsibility as the body is to be planting good seeds in each other and into our community and everywhere. But where and what kind of seeds are you planting and if they're the good seed then you should be the most excited encouraged person in the world because you have the promise of the savior that he will bring about a good harvest and if that doesn't excite you then i'm afraid you're probably planting the wrong seeds knowing it may not be today 
may not be tomorrow, but there's going to be a harvest, and it's going to be amazing because it's his harvest. And he promises to get us there. Whoops, too many. Back button. Small button. Okay, too far. This one's really, really a good one. Okay, number six, the opportunistic act of blessing your family members. Let's look at verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I cannot say it any better than this commentator, uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown, made this quote. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity and, if I can afford it, for the active exertion of pecuniary relief or financial help. But a poor Christian has a far greater claim on my feelings my labors, and my property. He is my brother, equally interested as myself in the blood and the love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior, and he considers everything done to his poor afflicted as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it's monstrous. God gives us the opportunity and the command to be opportunistically looking for opportunities to bless each other in the body, to love on each other, to be kind to each other, to encourage each other, to help each other, to bear each other's burdens. He gives us that opportunity and he commands us to look for it. And I like how he puts it. To be unkind to another Christian is not only wrong, it's monstrous. Are you being a monster? One of the things, and I've had multiple conversations with people around town, um, because one of the things that Melissa and I love to do is buy used items. So we buy stuff off Facebook Marketplace almost at a scary rate. But what I love about it is I go to this person's house to look at whatever item it may be. And as an American, we're used to a three-minute transaction on these type of things. But here it turns into a two-hour conversation. And I love it. I love it. I go to people's houses, look at their stuff, and then we talk for two hours. But the thing that happens almost every time we talk, that, uh, excuse me, that breaks my heart. Because as I talk to them, they always ask me, so why would an American come here? And I said, because the Lord led us here. Because the Lord wants us here. And we're here to be a pastor, to tell people of the hope of the gospel. And I get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And then they say to me, but the churches here are terrible. Almost every person has a story of how the church hurt them. 
and how they don't want to be any part of the church. They still love God. They still love Christ. But they don't want to be a part of the church because the church is mean. They don't use the word that the church people are monsters. But it's the effect of what they're saying. And <clears throat> you hear the stories, and I have to say, I, I, I can see where they get there. That people have been monsters to them from the church. So they view the church as this thing I want nothing to be a part of. Now, some of it may be misplaced desires on their part. And some of it may be an overreaction on their part or carrying each other's gossip load. Maybe. But at the end of the day, the outcome is still they view the church as monsters. And really, this is one of the reasons the Lord brought me to this text. Is how can we change that? How do we change the way people perceive of us? One of the ways we do it is by stopping monsters to each other. And this text gives us six ways that if we lived out this way, how would we look differently to those outside our community? If we really held these six responsibilities as I have to do these things, not how can I avoid these things? But this is my mandate from the Father, and I will do these things. How would our churches look different? The community would see it. People would know that we're different. Because we don't turn a blind eye to a sin. We don't turn our backs on those who need help. We love each other. We look for ways of blessing each other. We share the good things that are happening in our life. We be the body of Christ. How do we change the perception in the community? You act like Christ. And I'm not pointing to any one person or saying this is just this church's problem. No one has mentioned this church to me. <laughs> so just so you know, I'm just saying that is the perception in the community. All churches are this way. How do we change it? Be like Christ. So, you know, of all the applications that we can draw today, the one I really want you to go home with is, am I living like Christ to my church, to the people in, the, in these rows next to me? And if I am, then I should expect an amazing harvest because the Lord promises to bring about that harvest. What are you doing? Are you being a monster or are you being a family? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the Galatian problem. Lord, because it informs us so much today of where we fail and how we need to change. Lord, I thank you for this group, this body of believers. Lord, may they be Christ, Christ's hands and feet to each other every day. May we change the way we look at problems. May we go from this mess is not mine to this is mine. And Lord, thank you for the mess. Lord, I pray that you would continue a work in our hearts. May we be driven closer and closer to you. And may we worship you in 
spirit and truth this day. And Lord, I thank you for all that you've done in your precious and holy name. Amen.